0: Implantable stimulators, urine proteomics, and telltale gut microbiome stories. Welcome to the wide and wonderful world of rheumatology. This is the rheumatology podcast, the Room Now podcast. This is for the week of October the 21st, 2022. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This and a lot more, of course, on the podcast. Let's begin with long COVID. seems to be in the news quite a bit. There was a report this week that I think appeared in JAMA, I want to say, about uh, rheumatic disease patients who developed breakthrough COVID infections uh, after vaccination and then those who developed COVID and not being vaccinated. And they looked at the incidence of long COVID. uh, And if you were vaccinated and again, this is rheumatic disease patients, autoimmune arthritis and whatnot, if you were vaccinated, the raw numbers were that 21% developed long COVID symptoms versus the unvaccinated, where 41% developed long COVID symptoms. But when they did their analyses, they adjusted for all kinds of things, sex, race, comorbidities, drugs, um, you know, immunosuppressants, et cetera. It was even more striking. Long COVID w- was seen in... One tenth the number if you were vaccinated, meaning there was a 90% reduction in long COVID symptoms. Long COVID is a real thing. Um, The question is, what is it? Um, I'm still not sure if a lot of them are fibromyalgia, the stress, the disordered sleeping, um, sort of fibromyalgia like kind of manifestations, or other true organ uh, persistent damage, like in the lung or brain and whatnot. Uh, There's much to be learned still about long COVID. You might want to follow it. But again, this does speak to the brilliance of vaccinating your patients against COVID throughout this pandemic. A report this week about the spinal cord stimulation um, arena. I know we don't do it. We don't advocate for it. Generally, we don't certainly do the procedure. If you're in that business, you know, if you if that's the hammer you are, then everyone looks like a nail if you know what I'm saying. Uh, So this gets really prescribed and promoted to a lot of patients so much so this is almost a $3 billion market and evidence as to its efficacy is somewhat lacking, I must say. Um, another JAMA page, uh, paper this week, a placebo controlled, sort of a sham, if you will, controlled study, looked at spinal cord burst stimulation. So, an implantable um, uh, device was given to patients who had chronic, ridicular pain after lumbar surgery. I think the number was 50 patients. They did a crossover design here. And, bottom line is that those who uh, reported on pain and pain related disability following the implantable burst stimulation didn't have any benefit. It was certainly no better than those who received placebo sort of sham uh, stimulation. So again, it's hard to advocate for that. I know on a case-by-case basis that some of our patients do well, but honestly, our patients who are looking into this are some of the most difficult patients to manage and to give them a shred of hope by going along with this might be prudent, but you gotta know that the data... Favoring this isn't really strong. Uh, I know that I have struggled in the past justifying my exorbitantly high salary, not um, with those who want to pay me saying, you know, rheumatology clinics generally lose money if an institution is, you know, paying for you and you try to advocate for all the Revenues that you generate by involving other specialists in the care of highly complex autoimmune and musculoskeletal patients um, and degenerative uh, arthritis patients, and then you know, forget about you know the imaging benefits and there's always the uh, the infusion centers that you uh, run and dominate, but you don't get credit for this. The 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 uh, periodical the rheumatologist had a nice peep paper on this recently that talked about your value as a rheumatologist and basically they said and they referred to sources that did study this showing that for every one dollar of revenue generated by an office visit there were twelve dollars in downstream revenues to the institution that's in labs consults surgeries infusions etc the bottom line is cognitive disciplines like rheumatology are really undervalued, and we need more research like this. If you're a young rheumatologist looking to do research, this would be really valuable research, and really, it's not hard to do. I mean, the monies are there. You can track where, what patient flow is like upon going to a rheumatologist versus going to a primary care doctor, for instance, or let's say even a surgeon. Anyway, please do that research. We need to see more data like this. A cross-sectional study of primary care doctors, almost 300 of them, looked at when they used the electronic health record, how, were they, how good it, they were managing those patients. And bottom line is that EHR use was significantly um, uh, associated with a greater level of care. And they measured care, and again, this is a primary care audience, on those who actually had hemoglobin A1c, uh, better hypertensive control, better, uh, more complete breast cancer screenings. They were more likely to do this. I guess the point is that if you are driven, either constitutively driven to document better care, that you're going to be better at care. Or you could say that if the EHR drives you to be detail-driven? Are you going to be detail-driven? They did not talk about, you know, those really annoying reminders and pop-ups that happen like in Epic and other EMRs that say, did you get your, you know, your jelly beans today? And those kind of, that wasn't talked about here. I have to assume that that wasn't operative in these positive results that are being reported. Again, I'm a big advocate for the EHR, but you have to learn how to use it and interface with the patient at the same time and still be labeled as human, which is what you, the doctor, are supposed to be. Uh, A positive uh, report this week from the CHMP, that division of the EMA, that makes recommendations to the EMA about the approval of drugs. This is about filgotinib. The selective JAK1 inhibitor that withdrew its application with the FDA almost two years ago um, because the FDA, in a complete response letter, raised concerns about uh, basically testicular safety on some sperm studies and some animal data saying there might be some concerns here. And at the time that they got that CHMP letter, I'm sorry, that, um, that complete response letter, that they had three studies in play that were going to answer. Two of the studies have been published and with positive results saying, does it look like there is any impairment of sperm numbers and function? And these studies done on mostly men uh, I think mostly with spondoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis uh, looks good. So this is going to probably affect again the European market and the EMA opinion about filgotinib. Don't know if this is going to be a ret- have a retroactive effect on what Gilead, the maker of filgotinib, uh, it's also called Giselica Worldwide, uh, what they'll do in the United States and whether that could possibly be made available in the United States. I have advocated in the past about better ways of assessing lupus, especially lupus nephritis. And here comes a study on 53 SLE patients who have um, um, lupus nephritis in the bulimumab, bulimumab a lupus nephritis trial, they looked at urine proteomics and they showed, comparing those who responded to those who didn't respond, that reductions in CD163 was very strongly associated with complete responses. The things that we rely on, complement levels, degree of proteinuria, really are not as predictive as we'd like them to be. They're, in fact, they're really poor. We do need better measures of renal lupus. And and as I've said before, Fava and colleagues at Hopkins talked about CD19 in the urine being highly predictive. This is another report looking at CD163. <coughs> Again, very helpful in managing these patients. Question is, do you do renal biopsies in your patients with lupus? A study of 277 lupus patients with ultrasound-guided renal biopsies showed the complication rate to be a little surprising to me. The um, incidence of bleeding post-renal biopsy was almost 20%, 19.9%, minor in 13%, major in 7%. um, And those who were at greater risk, not surprisingly, and you're wondering why this is even happening, would be lupus patients who have thrombocytopenia. Really? Thrombocytopenia and you're doing a renal biopsy? You might want to rethink that mistake. I actually made that mistake a long time ago, never to make it again. If you have thrombocytopenia, your odds of bleeding post-biopsy go up sevenfold. Uh, Also, patients with very low EGFRs um, had a a three-and-a-half-fold increased risk of bleeding. Uh, Again, I think that there are instances where biopsy are necessary, but uh, unless you're in an institution that I think is studying this. Um, I I don't know that's really necessary in in every patient with lupus or lupus nephritis. Uh, But we could argue about that. That really is a very contentious sort of issue. Uh, I found this interesting article that advocates something I've been yelling about for years, and that is if you're on methotrexate for RA, let's say, but for any reason, and you're taking folic acid... You don't have to stop the folic acid on the day you take the methotrexate. It does not impair responses. And this study uh, looked at this, and you can find the reference on there. And yeah, it was based on animal, model, animal models and studies of, of, of rats who were taking methotrexate. But I think that this is really still good scientific evidence that methotrexate um, uh, folate doesn't impair the methotrexate response if you give it at the same time on the same day. So the practice of holding methotrexate, that's foolish. You're confusing the patient. Take it on these days but not those days. Again, it's kind of nuts if you ask me. Please don't do that. Uh, a study of the value of bariatric study, study, bariatric patients was undertaken in a really large cohort. Claims data analysis of 86,000 patients found a large cohort of patients who had severe obesity and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and they showed that the 35% who actually had bariatric surgery versus those who didn't, um, bariatric surgery was associated with a lowering of cardiovascular risk by 50%. Bariatric surgery really works in high-risk individuals. We know it works, you know, in lowering blood pressure and diabetes and need for medication. It does work in, um, in, in weight loss, although it's often incomplete. And unless it's backed up by other lifestyle modifications, bariatric surgery may not be a smart move. But in some really high-risk patients, bariatric surgery has significant benefits. Um, and, and I think that we should consider and talk about that with our patients. IL-23s have sort of taken over the uh, psoriasis market. They're gigantically impressive in their efficacy and their safety. Uh, this one single set of meta- meta-analysis of uh, 80 patients who are taking any one of the three IL-23 inhibitors, that includes guselkamab, tildrakizumab, and uh shows that survival of the drug after a year was 81% mean survival of 61 weeks, um, despite the um, vast majority of people having pri- previously taken and failed a TNF inhibitor. So uh, again, I think it's an important point that the, these drugs are not only clinically effective, uh, they are also have the durability that makes them, I think, game changers in the treatment of psoriasis. And of course, their, their, their value in treating psoriatic arthritis is also equally impressive. Also, new data, uh, and we're starting to see a trickle of data. I talked about that this week. I was lecturing at the Clinical Congress of Rheumatology in San Diego. You can see I'm wearing my T-shirt from CCR. Uh, Congratulations to Pam and David McLean for running yet another great meeting. I lectured on um, the year in review. I talked about JAK inhibitors um, and reports of JAK inhibitors and their use in systemic sclerosis. So this is another one of the reports, 15 patients with early diffuse uh, systemic sclerosis and showed that, yes, it did uh, show improvement in modified Rodman skin scores. And then they also did biopsies showing down regulation of STAT3 in macrophages and dendritic cells in interferon and fibroblasts uh, and in other markers of fibroblasts and inflammatory activity. Uh, again, this data and along with other anecdotal reports merits uh, a well designed uh, controlled trial of tofacitinib or other JAK inhibitors in patients with systemic sclerosis. Uh, Mike Hollers and his group had a, re- Kevin Dean, uh, um, I think Seifert was the primary author on this paper uh, about Prevotella responses in patients with RA. Uh, they had 98 RA patients, established RA, and uh, match controls. And they also had 67 preclinical RA patients and match controls and looked at the presence of uh, 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 anti-P27 antibodies against uh, prevatella copri And they showed that RA patients had much higher antibody levels to PC or Prevotella. Um, and that the exact same findings were seen in preclinical patients, those will be people who do not have RA, do not meet criteria, do not have synovitis, but yet they seem to have some of the same biology. Of course, this probably all emanates from the, from the gut and the microbiome changes and whatnot. Uh, Dr. Hollers and co-workers did an interesting microbiome study looking at the lung microbiome uh, in preclinical RA, showing some real interesting results. So again, this furthers the story about the, what's going wrong in RA before it becomes RA, the preclinical RA story, that environmental uh, figure uh, influences will change the the patient into an autoimmune state that may then progress to manifest arthralgias and then maybe RA. Uh, Interesting work and congratulations to those uh, investigators. I want to uh, remind you, last week I did a podcast on if you want to get into clinical trials, I didn't fail to mention that one of the handouts on the website and one of the in the download um, that we have on the website is a clinical trials grid. This is a grid that you would use to fill in the data that you have in your hands when you're seeing patients and need to talk about clinical trials. Think about downloading that if you are doing clinical trials. I want to give a shout out <coughs> and congratulations to The um, ACR awardees that are going to be honored at this year's ACR Convergence 2022. Um, This includes the gold medal award winner, which goes to Dr. Betty Diamond at Hofstra Northwell in New York. The Distinguished Basic and Translational Investigator Award goes to Judy James at OMRF. The Distinguished Clinical Scholar Award goes to Michael Lockshin at Special Surgery. The Henry Kunkel Early Career Investigator Awards goes to Cecilia Chung at Vanderbilt. And Michelle Kallenberg at Michigan. Congratulations to them for their work and what looks to be a, a long future of dedicated rheumatology research. Uh, Distinguished Clinical Investigator Award goes to Joel Kremer in Albany. Uh, again, congratulations to all of these folks on many, many, not many, probably about, I don't know what the number was, 20, 30, 50. It's more like 30, I think. 20 to 30. Uh, rheumatologists are going to be honored uh, with the master's distinction at this meeting. A few of them um, that I'm going to shout out here because I, I'm i very fond of these people. Richard Bukala in C- Connecticut, Leslie Cale in uh, St. Louis, Munther Kamashta, uh, the expert on, who's taught me everything on antiphospholipid syndrome, Alan Kivitz in Pennsylvania, uh, Andy Laster in North Carolina, Larry Moreland in Denver, Nancy Olson in Penn State, hey Nancy, Rob Schrelling in Boston uh, and Robert Warren uh, in South Carolina, Max Hamburger in Long Island. Again, you want to see the long list of other deserving Masters designation people from the, that's going to be honored at this year's ACR. It's on our report um, on the website. I want to end with... Um, uh, first a mention of a program called the best of rap rap as you know is rheumatology advanced practice providers they're doing meetings all around the country they got a meeting going on next saturday october 29th in houston that starts at eight in the morning it's at the houston marriott uh, on fanning street i want it's it's uh, uh bessie kirchner sent this my way she's going to be one of the faculty there they do great programs if you're a nurse practitioner or physician assistant in texas be sure to attend this meeting. You can register by going to org, not at, but edu.rap.org, and you can register for this great meeting. There was a report this last week about pregnancy outcomes in patients, lupus patients treated with belimumab. It's interesting. We don't often see pregnancy reports. The bottom line is that they had a fairly acceptable rate of pregnancy losses, those are usually miscarriages. That was a rate about twenty to thirty percent. And this study that looked at outcomes, they use a number of different uh, sources. You know, they had their uh, bulimumab clinical trials. They have a registry called the bulimumab, uh pregnancy registry BPR, and they also looked at FDA post-marketing spontaneous reports. Uh, and so, uh, ex- you know, the expected was seen with uh, a pregnancy loss. They had. Variable reports on birth defects. In general, the numbers were really low, um, being something like, let me, let me see it here. It was 5.6% uh, um, in the, uh, I think, the clinical trials um, versus zero uh, in the placebo-exposed population. If you look at birth defect rates in uh, in the general population, they range from about 3 to 6%. It's really hard to get uh, really good data on that from the the BPR the registry, however, they they only have a few patients in there, and they don 't have enough patients honestly, but twenty one percent had birth defects. I think this report reflects a, a a selective reporting bias because when they look at the rates in um, spontaneous reporting, it was still really, really low It was like one point one percent so Uh, We need to watch that birth defect rate, but uh, again, I think this is going to fall under the same we're seeing with other biologics is that patients need to be well controlled during pregnancy. If that means being on a biologic, so be it. Generally, there's very, very little evidence that biologics are are more hazardous. The drug is more hazardous than is the pregnancy. It's the pregnancy that really screws up the pregnancy outcome. So, hopefully, you take that to heart in going forward. I want to remind you to ask your question, or record a comment or a case by clicking on Ask Cush uh, Anything. It's on the email. It's on the website, and we'll feature your comments or case in future podcast recordings. Can't wait to talk to you next week. Take care.